There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombacher, and we've got our first live show for you coming up. Centauri and I were joined by Catherine Alonzo, the CEO of Phoenix branding agency, Havelina. We had a great conversation that went from Catherine's experiences in starting Havelina to all the challenges associated with growth and primarily change to how utilizing the power of story can help to effectively articulate your message. The underlying theme of the show was managing through change, and it fit nicely with their new tagline, bring your story to life, change the world. You can find out more about Catherine and Havelina at havelina.co, as well as some other places that are listed in the show notes, and I definitely encourage you to check it out. As always, you can click contact us in the show notes, and we'll get you what you need to make it happen. Please subscribe to the show. Feel free to share us on social media. That's enough about that. Let's go. Well, we are very excited. Welcome to everybody for coming to the first live podcast of Figure It Out. So um, this is, I think, our 43rd episode, and we're thrilled to uh, be here at the McKinley Club and interviewing Catherine of Havelina. So let's just get started. Let's get into it and get... You know what? Actually, Centauri, it feels like something is missing. Let me let me see if I can get Jason on the phone to uh, to properly kick the meeting off. Okay. Do our intro. Hi, Jason. Awesome. Thank you, man. We appreciate it. <laughs> so cool. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. Uh, my name is George Grombacher. Joining me, as always, is Centauri Minor. Hello, folks. And helping us move from awareness to action tonight is Catherine Alonzo, the CEO of Havelina. Hi. Welcome. Centauri, do you feel like you are... Afraid of change, or do you embrace change? Oh, uh, yeah. um, I am very, very uh, change adverse. I like routine. I like knowing when things are going to happen. I actually very much dislike change. Okay. So, yeah. Oh, fair, very, very well. That uh, was very judgmental. <laughs> <laughs> well, change is one of those things that that it's it's certainly unavoidable. And Catherine, I think that you certainly have a lot of experience dealing with change. Certainly over the last couple of years. Um, tell us a little bit about how you launched Havelina and circumstances behind that. Tell us your story. Sure thing. So I love change and kind of think that one of the things that we need to do in the world is equip people to deal with change and to love it like I love it because it's a certainty. And so um, that's sort of one of the one of my like small missions. But the bigger story, so the story of Havelina. We today are a change engineering company. That's exactly what we do. And I'll explain what that means and what that is. But the history is we started in 2012 as a political consulting firm, really working with candidates and with ballot measures and doing general consulting and direct mail. And then we um, 
very organically, it sort of changed over a few years. So what happened was a few organizations reached out to us a couple of years ago and said, we want to do this thing, but we want to do it like a campaign. And will you help us? And so what that did is it forced us to think, okay, when we're doing a political campaign, what is it that we're doing exactly? So that we can duplicate that for nonprofits and for businesses and other kinds of organizations. And what we really discovered is that the things that, it, that makes a campaign a campaign is the goal is super clear. You have to get more votes than the other guy and it's clear to everybody whether you're success, successful or not. And that clear goal that's given to you is part of what drives successful campaigns. And so when we're working with other kinds of clients, the first thing we do is establish what's the goal? How are we measuring success here? What does a win look like? And then the other thing that campa effective campaigns do is they figure out who's the target audience that we need to reach and how, what's the story we're going to tell that target audience to move them to our side. And then every decision after that is made based on that target audience. And so we just do that same thing with our other clients as we determine, okay, now you know what the goal is. Now what, who's the target audience that we need to reach and what's the story that we can tell them to bring them into the fold. And then we bring together the very best of marketing strategy and the very best of campaign strategy to real to bring that story to life and realize the change. And so what happened over time is this really natural evolution is we became a change engineering company. And so now we still work with political candidates, we still work with ballot initiatives, and we work with individuals and nonprofits and businesses, any kind of organizational person that wants to realize change in their industry, on their sector, their community, the world. And we help them figure out, okay, what is the change you wanna see? And then how do we bring your story to life so you can realize that change? And our services, which include um, communications and traditional PR and um, direct mail and website work and door-to-door -door work, all those things, I think of them as sort of a menu of options, and those are the things we use to realize the change that the client wants. So tell us a, bit, a little bit about why change. So I know a little bit about Havelina, and it seems like you're very focused on social impact, uh, political climate. Why there and not just any brand that wants to align with you? Why, why that kind of organization? Yeah. So what we exist to do is to advance equality and human dignity through social, political, and economic change. And so we look around and everybody, so we're a team of 12 people and everyone comes to the work in a different way. We're all driven to make a difference uh, in one way or another for some reason. And everybody comes that, at that to that from a different place. My personal story is that I, in the, in the family that I grew up in, um, I, when I was six months old, my older brother died really suddenly in a tragic accident. I was, he was just about to turn three. And I do not know what it's like to lose a child, but I do know what it's like to grow up in a family that knows that tomorrow isn't promised and that knows that the life doesn't come with a safety blanket. And so that what my parents taught me was you have to make a difference. You've been given this opportunity to make a difference in the world and you never know what someone's going through. And so treat everybody with kindness and, and make the world a better place. And so I always knew that I wanted to make a difference in some way and have naturally um, come to the work of Pavelina and are now in a position to enable everybody else, other people, to fight to make change too. 
And I'm sorry, how, how old were you when you lost your, your brother? Uh, I was six months old. You were six months old. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. Um, after starting the company, and that's been how many years now? Uh, five and a half. Five and a half years. Yeah. What, uh, what, what changes have you experienced post starting the company? Oh, so personally? Post. Or uh, as a company? Yes. But, <laughs> correct. <laughs> um, so much, so much change. So, you know, as I said, we started as a political consulting firm. So the trajectory we were on was working with campaigns in other states and really doing a lot of campaign work, a lot of direct mail work. And naturally, we just very organically moved into the space where instead of um, doing one thing in lots of different places, we've kind of gone the other way and done... Uh, lots of different things, in mostly in Arizona at the moment, although we do want to change that. And so the firm, you know, a year ago or just over a year ago, we were really small, three founding partners and one team member. And now, like I said, the full team is 12 people. So that comes with a ton of change. What we offer is different. How we talk about ourselves is different. For me, personally, it's also been really different. It was about three, we had had Havelina for three years before I even realized that I had a business. Uh, someone at some point asked me, what's it like to run a business? And I said, oh, I guess I do. How would I know? <laughs> yeah. um, I really thought of myself as a, as a political consultant. And so once I realized um, that I owned a business, then it changed everything. And something, I don't know if others have had this experience, but there's some amazing, something amazing about not knowing what you don't know. And at the beginning, I didn't know what I didn't know. And it's like I, when I first started running, I didn't know what I didn't know. And it was amazing because there was no pressure, no expectation. And, and when you figure it out a little bit, that's when the, you put pressure on yourself and so um, the stakes got raised a little bit there. So I think I, I didn't used to worry about doing things incorrectly, um, and now I do. So for a little bit of level setting, when you Actually, say- Actually, I wanted to ask you how you feel like ignorance is bliss has, has benefited you. Me personally? <laughs> really? I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> Come on, jeez. I'm just gonna ignore that one. Um, so a little bit of level setting. Um, when you say campaign worker, can you talk a little bit about some work that you've done to make it tangible for our listeners? Oh yeah, sure, absolutely. So we, the thing that we've done most recently is we worked on Proposition 206 in Arizona last year, and that was a statewide initiative to increase the minimum wage. So we were a part of that campaign, and that um, was a significant minimum wage increase for everybody in Arizona, and also was the passage of earned sick leave. Um, which didn't exist in Arizona before. So um, that was one of one of the most significant. We've worked on several mayor's races, a lot of um, a lot of local initiatives. There was a transportation initiative, a big one here in Phoenix in 2015 called Move Phoenix, which was a, a sales tax increase to support transportation funding. Um, uh, increasing light rail, bus, that kind of stuff. And we were very involved in that. Got it. Well, I think that, and I was, I, I always start the show by giving Centauri a hard time about things. And I don't know that any of us really love change necessarily. Well, it sounds like you maybe do love change, but it carries with it these uncertainties, which can certainly lead to maybe things like self-doubt. What did you encounter any challenges going through that? 
change? Tons, and they still do. I mean, the self-doubt and the fear is constant. And I think that fear is um, intrinsic in every single human being, and it comes up at different times in different places. You couldn't, I think it's essential to the survival of the human race. If you didn't have it, really bad things would happen. Mm. Um, And sometimes a healthy dose of fear can be your friend. Mm. But oftentimes it sits there and it's just this voice that will tell you you're wrong and you can't do this and you're not qualified and someone one day soon is going to walk into my office and be like you you realize you have no rights running a business and that sits sits with with me all the time and that's everyone feels that way that's not unique to me and so i think um it's interesting because oftentimes people will say to me that i i look like i have it all together and I think that of other people, we all have those people that we look at and think, oh, if I could just be more like that. And so trying to just remember that all the time, that I have those people and, and maybe I, I'm that person for others. Um, and just trying to sort of get out of my own head and overcome that fear sometimes. Do you think that, that your experience and your family's experience with losing one of their kids helped shape you into a person who can deal with adversity better? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, I, no, (laughs) I don't. Um, I think that growing up in a grieving family has given me a very unhealthy fear of people in close to dying. Mm. Um, My husband will tell you that if we're not in constant communication, uh, I'm pretty convinced that he's in a ditch somewhere. And that's something that he's very tolerant of, but something I've had to work on as well. And so I think the thing that I have learned in my 30s as opposed to my 20s, in my 20s I used to think that you're a product of what happened to you and that is what it is. And what I'm learning in my 30s is that everything is choice and that if I don't want to have fear drive my life, then I'm the only one that can change that. And so I think that the experience I had growing up certainly gave me an appreciation for, I you know, I like to think I don't take people for granted and, and my mom really taught that um, to me and there's definitely good things. The other thing tr- too is, you know, what happens to you happens to you and you, you don't, I have nothing to compare it to. So I don't know exactly what impacted what and I think everybody's that way. We talk about people's stories and who they are and, and what made them that way but to you to each individual it's not a story it's just your life and some stuff happened and some good stuff happened and some bad stuff happened and a lot of boring stuff happened and mm. and being able to sort of parcel out what did that yeah what does that look like and how do I communicate that to other people and how do I understand that for myself is a process and it's just a case of being constantly self-reflective but also not taking yourself too seriously. That's an important one, right? Yes. Not to yourself. I want to take yourself too seriously. Uh, go back to the, a little bit about what you were essentially talking about was imposter syndrome, right? So yes. you get to a certain level of success that you don't feel like you deserve or you feel like everyone realizes that I shouldn't be here. So talk a little bit about how you've overcome that, if you have, and what advice you'd give to listeners who are also in the same boat. Yeah, I think it's a case of the way I think of it is imposter syndrome is a voice sitting on this shoulder telling you that you know, you're not good enough, you're not worthy, someone's gonna figure you out, you're stupid. And so it's a case of figuring out what do I have to do to feed the counterbalance to that voice? 
So it's different for everybody. I think it's a case of, you know, affirmations or having good people around you that believe in you or um, meditation, whatever it is for you, making sure that you can sort of stay strong because when you're emotionally and spiritually weakened, the imposter syndrome voice gets stronger. Mm. And so staying sort of emotionally and spiritually strong is part of it. And then the other part of it is really just thinking um, to yourself that maybe it's not about me. And so this is how at my at my weakest moments I do it is I get outside of my head and think about other people and what maybe it can mean to other people. And so if it's, and it is, it's sometimes it's really difficult and I don't want to do the things that I've committed to and I want to crawl into a ball and crawl away from that fear and I think, all right, well, I'm just not going to think about me. I'm going to think about what it could mean to the young woman sitting in the audience that wants a professional career or the young kid in the audience who also has had really tough times at home and doesn't know how they're going to survive it. And I always think to myself, if I can, if I can provide some kind of takeaway for just one person, then it's worth it. Getting and keeping a sense of, of where we are is, is incredibly challenging and, and so important, obviously, so that's a matter of perspective. We're faced with change all the time. Sometimes it's change that, that, that we're moving forward and causing proactively, but a lot of the time it's stuff that happens to me and, and I don't have any say in what those things are. It's like what happened to your family and, and bad things happen to all of us and they happen a lot. There's a, a quote that said, uh, in life you're either the hammer or the anvil. And that's one of my favorites because I always want to be the hammer, right? Mm -hmm. I, I want to be the person affecting things, but the reality is that a lot of the time I'm also the anvil. Um, and for me personally, I've studied things like stoicism, which essentially is, you know, you can't really control what's going to happen. You control how you respond to it. And also Buddhism a little bit, which is, you know, a lot of lousy stuff happens and you can deal with that as well. Do you have any philosophical views or any practices? You mentioned mindfulness a little bit that help you to get through it. Yeah, mindfulness, a lot of it. Uh, and then really one I've been concentrating on recently is the point of um, perspective. And so we, so there's the stuff that happens and, and thing, events happen. And then there's the story we tell ourselves about what happened. Mm -hmm. And so I try as much as I can to unpack, all right, what's actually happening here? And then what, how is this showing up for me? And sometimes, I, you know what I try and imagine is if, so let's say I have a conflict with somebody and, you know, I have this story that they did this wrong and they did that wrong and they did this thing that upset me. And I think if they were going to go to lunch with a friend and tell this third party friend about it, how would they tell the story? And they wouldn't tell it, like, I... I was mean to Catherine, you know, and so I try and sort of think about what getting outside of kind of my view and recognizing how another person might see it, not, not beca because there's not right and wrong, really, um, and because all there is is two sides to the story. Interpretations of right, us. Right, right, exactly. I think a lot of people um, in business and professional life have to figure out how to grasp interpretations because how you and I, we would have the same situation happen to us, we were both there, but we interpret them completely different ways and come, come to the story. You talked a bit about um, the people around you. So obviously, Havelina has grown a lot since you started it, and you've, you've scaled up. Talk a little bit about your team. What, what's happened since when you were the, 
the three-person shop to now, and and what was the reason for that growth and everything there? Yeah, the team's amazing. The, it's all about the people. It's all about the people we serve. It's all about the people we have in the organization. There would be absolutely no impact if it wasn't for the team. There was there is nothing that I could achieve alone. Um, one of the things that I learned really quickly was that everything was in my head. And so there are certain things, like when we started hiring a team, we had already had four years of business, but I never wrote anything down. And so then as we started growing um, and I had to train other people, I had to do that all one-on-one -on -one, and I had to do it all from memory. Mm. And so and a piece of advice that I would give actually, something I wish I had done is as we as there were these certain things that I was doing over and over because uh, you know in any business in any organization there are certain things that are repetitive. I wish I had just written down the steps um, mm. and just put it somewhere so that when I started to train other people, I had something to go to because when you're going from your memory, you just forget. Um, so that so that's one thing. I lost your question. I started talking about that and I went. <laughs> your your I team, went off. yeah. Sorry. Your team growing. The reasons why. What what does the team look like now as opposed to what it was at the beginning? Right, right, right. So we um, so now we have um, let's see, four people that work directly on client work, an operations manager, um, somebody that concentrates on our financials, a designer, and then the three partners. So um, it's very sort of client focused. That's where we've grown. I think one of the difficult leaps for a growing organization to make is when our first hires were all tied to client income. So we bought on a client and then we would bring on a staff member to service that client. And one of the difficult leaps is when you have to start hiring people that are sort of pure overhead. Mm -hmm. So they're not connected to client income, and but they're so vital and they will enable you to grow and bring in additional clients. So that was a leap I've had to take. Um, and that was a moment where it was literally like holding my breath and jumping because it wasn't gonna happen any other way. And it's been a, one of the best decisions for the business. So as you look, or for listeners, um, that are looking to scale their business. Talk to us a little bit about why you found that so valuable. So if someone's like hesitant to in, put in cash or put in infrastructure in their own business, talk a little bit about why an operations manager is important or why you felt these, these things not directly tied to income were pertinent to your business. Right. So I would say that as soon as you have more than one person, culture is something that you should be thinking about. Mm. And actually, if we were going to go back and do it all over again, I would start thinking about our culture when there was just the three founding partners, which is not something we ever talked about. So one of the first things that any business should do is come up with their mission, their vision, and their values. And we didn't do that until we would, had been in business for four years. We just never really talked about it. And so um, now that we're growing, we're kind of backing into figuring out who are we, what is our culture, what is acceptable at Havelina, what, what does an amazing day look like at Havelina, who are the people that will thrive in our environment. Mm -hmm. And so that is something that any, anybody who is going into business now, I always say to them, hey, as pointless as this might seem to you at this point in time, I really would encourage you to spend a whole entire day thinking about what are my values, what is the vision for the company, and what is our mission. And I get very strange looks because people think like it's not a good investment in time, but you will have to do it eventually. So that's one. And then the other one is, think, is write everything down because you essentially should do something yourself until it's painful and then you should grow a system and bring people in 
to grow it. Because doing it yourself, um, and by yourself, I don't mean necessarily you as a, as a founder or as a CEO, but um, somebody who is invested in the company, you should be doing that directly as long as you can because you learn so much. You learn what are the pain points for the customer, what's amazing for the customer. There's so much that only really you can take. And then once doing it manually becomes painful, that's when you should start to really sort of grow it and bring it to the people. However, when you get to that painful point, you want to be somewhat prepared to train others. So write everything down. And so um, my last question before we, I'm asking a lot of questions we did not send you ahead of time, um, but you're answering them great. Um, you have been known for having or putting out unorthodox job postings, like how you structure what that looks like. And I find that book so fascinating. So talk a little bit about that and how that's yielded the, the staff members that you've had. Yeah, so I have strong, strong opinions about hiring. Um, so in my opinion, the way that most companies hire is completely broken. And it really makes no sense. And here's why I think it's broken, is because it tests a very particular skill set. So generally you do job posting, uh, send your resume and cover letter, interview one, interview two, select. And obviously there's some variation, but that's the general way it works. So what you're doing in that process is you're testing for writing ability and you're testing in interview for the ability to think on your feet and come across as relaxed when you're probably not. And so if those skill sets are important in the job that you're hiring for, great. But if they're not, then you're not testing really anything that's going to be relevant to the position. And so when we were hiring for operations manager, I wrote the first job posting and it was lame. And I was just like, I'm going to, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to post, you know, I asked for somebody that can... Um, uh, manage competing demands on their time, somebody that can prioritize, somebody that likes to work independently as uh, well as a part of a team, which I feel like is like the match.com equivalent of that is like someone that likes to chill out on weekends but also likes to go out. <laughs> like such a cliche. Um, and it had all those things in it. And I thought, I'm going to post this. And every single person on Indeed.com says that they have this. They and every single posting says that they want it. And that's just, where are you going to start seeing through the noise? So instead, so I deleted it and I thought to myself, okay, what I'm going to do instead is write the job posting that I think the person I'm looking for would read and not be able to resist. And so I just wrote a completely different kind of job posting and it, it worked. We had all kinds of people apply. Um, we found the person of our dreams. It's working out fantastically. I don't think that person would have applied for, would have responded to the milk toast version. So, um, so that's sort of, and, and so for now, so since then we've kind of amped it up a little bit. So now instead of just the posting, now what we do is we think we design the entire process in a way that is, uh, designed to test the skill sets that will be used in the job. So, for example, if public speaking is going to be an important part of the job, then we would test public, instead of doing an interview, we would have them do a presentation. Mm -hmm. If writing skills uh, are important, we just hired for some where writing skills were not going to be particularly important, so we asked for a letter um, to uh, a letter to an 18-year-old who wasn't going to register to vote, persuading them to vote, but we clarified that we were not looking for spelling 
grammar punctuation and we didn't we did not factor that in we were looking for passion and somebody that could articulate a passionate argument we weren't looking for writing and so um i i certainly can't claim we have it all figured out i think that it's been somewhat successful um but we're going to keep tweaking it sometimes outside of the box thinking is still a valuable thing right that's what i like to think so you guys you guys talk a lot about stories and your line of work and when I was thinking about the show tonight, it made me think about the three really basic parts of persuasion, pathos, ethos, logos, and how that's really playing out in the world today, particularly politically. And just as a quick refresher, uh, logos talks about logic, ethos is credibility, and pathos is the emotional piece. And certainly, I don't care what side of the aisle you're on, but I don't think that President Trump necessarily is killing it in the logos or ethos part, but certainly, and pathos is absolutely smashing it. And obviously, President Obama was, was perhaps the greatest orator that, 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 that we've seen in a very long time. So able to get up and really move people emotionally to the message. So how does that play into your work? Yeah, I mean, storytelling and an ability to tell a story in an emotional way is everything. I was thinking and preparing for this conversation, I was thinking about what is it about storytelling? Because we hear that a lot. Storytelling is definitely having a moment. Um, there's all kinds of storytelling nights. You hear about stories. You Google, um, bringing, you know, if you Google sort of personal story, all kinds of paid ads will come up. And so I was thinking, what is it about the word story that we think is powerful? And what I think it is, is that a story um, invites other people in. What a story does is it gives an entry point for the person that's listening. And it really, if you think about sort of being read a story when you were younger, it really was sort of somebody opening a page and inviting you to be a part of the narrative. And so that's what I think an effective story does, is it's it, not necessarily even about you, it's about anything, but what you're doing and sharing the words is giving the listener an opportunity to be a part of it and to learn from it and to be moved by it or to be outraged by it. And so the most effective ones are those that hook people in and, and keep them there and sort of leave them feeling super impassioned mm -hmm. and um i like him or hate him and i'm not i don't like him trump is very good at that and he's very good at telling a story he in fact won an election by telling a very mm -hmm. strong story over and over and over and a over simple one too right yeah very simple our first um our first guest in our podcast was Park Howell, who does a lot of storytelling so you're work. You're going to say it was Trump. No, no, no. no. I, I was going to say I wish, but no, maybe not. Uh, but uh, Park really did talk about how storytelling played into the election. So to affirm your point, it was it was very big. Right. And then I think another way that we see it playing out is there's a whole profession that exists now that didn't used to exist in terms of people who are internet famous. And so all kinds of YouTube stars in fitness and makeup and design and all kinds of anything you can think of, there is a YouTube star for it. And what the effective ones do is they tell really incredible stories. Short stories, long stories um, about what they do and about why it's important and they hook people in. And so how do you, I think that the core ingredients are a true passion for what you're talking about and then a certain level of authenticity. That there is just this sense that there's somebody talking to the camera and they're talking about something they love and they want you to come along for the ride. I think those very simple ingredients are really, really powerful. We've talked on the show about uh, what you're talking about, influencer marketing. 
what do you see is that how has that affected your work if, if at all influencer marketing yeah i mean i think it's a huge part of our work the very concept of sort of how you become an influencer is really um a core part of our work we have clients who are looking to become influencers and so um that's definitely a lot of what we talk about and so where we always start with people that want to either use influencer marketing in their work or become an influencer is we start with you have to understand what your why is and you have to understand as a person why are you driven to do what you do and that takes time to do it takes reflection it's not like I was saying before your life is your life you don't necessarily sort of parcel out the pieces that influenced you and so it takes real time to, to self-reflect and think where did all these ingredients come from that drive me to do this work and so we really encourage our clients to spend time going deep on what is the why, and then you figure out how to talk about it. Do you think that that's, is that easy for people? Is that a pro, have, have they thought about that before? No, it's very hard for people. It's very hard. And so one of the things that we have certain like tips and tricks that we encourage people to do. So one of them is think, sit down and think, don't necessarily do the first thing that comes to mind, but think about three to five pivotal moments in your life that something happened, something big, something small, um, but in some way it was a it was a 180 degree turn for you that after it happened things were different than before it happened and come up with three to five of those and see um, what sort of things come up for you and really start to see what were these really important moments in your life and then what did you learn from those. And so we have a ton of sort of... Um, tips and tricks like that that we almost games to sort of help people dig inside and start to break down who they are so who do you when you think about that who are some some brands or some folks that we might know that do that particularly well that communicate their why I think Havelina does it really well good job <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that uh, locally uh, Tuft and Needle have had a lot of success. Uh, they are a mattress company based here in Phoenix, and they really caught people's attention with their creative billboards around town. And if you dig into the company, they do a very good job of explaining why they exist. They exist to interrupt the or disrupt the mattress industry because they um, ordered a mattress and learned that it's a it, that there was a lot of improvements that could be made through technology, and that's why they exist. And so I think that they have articulated very clearly sort of why they do what they do. Got it. So tell us a little bit about your, your new tagline. Yeah, so our new tagline for the company is bring your story to life, change the world. Mm. And so um, it's transitioned, I mean, it's really a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about where what we believe is that really what moves people is when you bring a story to life. And when I mean bring a story to life, what do I mean? What I mean is you tell a story in a way that invites others in. And it invites others in because they see themselves reflected in your story and they just can't resist. They might not have been intending to, but all of a sudden they're moved so greatly that they have to be a part of what you're talking about. And they believe in the change that you are talking about, whether that is electing somebody to office or whether it's disrupting the mattress industry you know whatever it is that they're so moved by something that they want to give their time their emotion their money to what you are working on 
And so we think that there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. And really, first, it is about digging deep and reflecting and figuring out what your why is. Then it's what are the words that we use to tell our story. And then it's what are the mediums we use to get our story out. So is it YouTube? Is it traditional TV? You know, what are the vehicles that drive the story? And so we were trying to encapsulate in eight words what is it that we do and what is our product. And our product is change. And we are inviting others to become change engineers too so that they can elevate and make a difference in the world. So obviously we live in a very trying and uh, tense time right now. Talk to us a little bit about how you feel stories can actually make a social movement. So how can stories do good in the world? I think they're the only thing that can. I honestly think stories are the only thing that can create a social movement. If you think about things you've been a part of, stuff that you've seen that you moved by, um, the, and then take it back to what was the thing that first hooked you in. Think about the causes that you care the most about, things you donate your time to, your money to. What was the first thing that hooked you in? It was most likely either personal experience or a story. And oftentimes it will be um, a story that somebody else has told you that makes you care about something deeply. And so we just believe that and that the ability to tell that story over and over and over is really powerful. And then here's the other thing. Storytellers, and I believe this strongly, storytellers are made, not born. It is a skill. And so it is a skill that you can develop. It is, a, And certainly some people are more naturally, you know, have that skill set than others. But I think there's this, we have this sort of belief that's ingrained in our society mm-hmm. that... You're, you come out of the womb a fantastic storyteller, and that's not true at all. It's a skill set that you can develop. And so when we look around and we see all kinds of campaigns and causes and people that need to be heard and yet don't happen to have the storytelling skill set developed, we think to ourselves, okay, wait, we have the ability to connect with them, develop that skill set so they can tell their story in a powerful way and move the world in a way that they have the potential to do. And so that's what we want to do. I recently uh, did a storytelling night, and I, f- I fancy myself as someone that can do that pretty well. Um, but the person coaching me was like, you're okay, but you're not great. And to your point, it was <laughs> intentional coaching. that I, I Pulling out the stories, the, it was really like five pivotal things. She's like, what do you want to talk about? How do you get through it? So it really is a skill that you can learn, and it's companies like Hoppelina that can help bring that out of you. Right, right, right. I wonder, and I probably should have done a little bit more research before the show tonight, but I, I wonder how much in the political conversation we've moved away from mm. facts, data, and policy to pure storytelling, and if we're going to reach peak storytelling and peak, peak narrative, and it's going to swing back. But as I say that, I think, well, really the, the part of it being authentic is actually knowing what you're talking about and then putting it in the form of a story. Yeah, and you need both. I mean, if you go back to your um, the three things, I've never actually heard that before, so that was education for me, um, and one of them was the logic. So you need the um, you need the Logos. evidence, yeah, that backs up the story. So what a story does, it connects with somebody on an emotional level, and if the I'm sure many of you are familiar with the work of Simon Sinek, who talks about the power of why, and that people do not buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And so what we're always seeking to enable our clients to do 
is communicate their why so that people can connect with you emotionally and then you have to back it up with evidence. We're not talking about um, moving away from substance, but we are talking about making that connection and then being able to back up what you're talking about with evidence. Mm -hmm. So being able to articulate be a good storyteller, learning how to become a good storyteller, but also having the information and the background to do it. That's really what we're looking for. Yes. Believe it or not. <laughs> that's the goal. And there are folks out there, and that, that, that certainly can be refined. Um, what's, uh, well, just talking about stories, what, what are some of the stories that have really changed your life? Yeah, I thought a lot about this. So my mom used to tell me a story about being in the grocery store and it was a few weeks after my brother died and she talked a lot about being in the grocery store and she was buying bread and she felt like she had this neon sign on her head that screamed my son died and everything was different the whole world was upside down for her colors looked different and yet people were floating around her and no one knew and to them she was just this perfectly normal woman buying bread and that always really stuck with me in terms of thinking, you just never know. You never know what somebody's story is. You never know what they're going through. You never know what they're facing in that moment or what they might face tomorrow. And similarly, they don't know what's going on with you. And so you know those moments where you're driving down the freeway and there's someone in front of you going 50 and you want to ram them in the end maybe that's just me um, and you know maybe they're transporting their kids goldfish from school or right. you know that's and, probably what it is <laughs> you know and so you just never know and so um what that i think has really sort of instilled in me and i definitely cannot claim to be perfect at this but is always just try to be kind wherever possible because we are all guaranteed to experience some kind of loss in a lifetime. And from having experiences where people close to me have lost, we've all had that experience where you have nothing to say and you just don't, don't know what to say. The only thing that we do have, in fact, to help each other is kindness. And the power of kindness can be um, just really, really life-changing. And in fact, the lack of it when you need it can be life-changing in the wrong way. Isn't that the truth? And that's, I mean, that's such awesome advice. And I. I think that that's one of the pieces of advice that President Obama always talked about wanting to instill in his kids was to be kind. Mm -hmm. And again, like what we talk about all the time, if everybody was just doing their best to be a good person and impacting the people that they have direct uh, connection to, the world would be a better place. So I appreciate that. So helping people to craft their own story, what, what, what advice would you give there? Yeah, so definitely the first thing is um, find your why. So finding your why is all about reflection. So those pivotal moments really um, sort of if you maybe sometimes people have a nugget that they know. Like I always knew that I wanted to make a difference but I had no idea how or what that looked like. Um, and so if you have a nugget and you know the nugget really sort of reflect on the nugget and think where that comes from and really sort of self-reflection what I a lot of times will tell our younger team members who ask me this question to do is expose yourself to as much stuff as you possibly can and then observe yourself observe what you like observe what you don't like sometimes you might surprise yourself I always thought that I loved writing and then when I really paid attention to what I prioritized during the day writing is actually 
not one of my favorite things to do. I enjoy the outcome, but actually doing it is not one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> and so um, expose yourself to all kinds of things and then observe is what I would always say. So that that's that reflection piece. And then once you are sort of carving out your story, it's never one and done. Um, it, takes, it takes time and it takes practice. And so play with it, practice it, introduce yourself at events, practice it with your friends and family and just tweak it and tweak it and practice over time. It's never something that's finished. So uh, this being our first live show, this is actually pretty exciting. Uh, we wanted to, this is usually about the time we close out, but wanted to open up uh, questions to the audience. Uh, anything of us, mostly Catherine, uh, to share her wisdom and impart uh, all that she does. So anyone? Go. Why Havelina? The name. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, yeah. So when we were naming the company, we at first were thinking about some formation of our three last names, the three founding partners. Uh, our last names are Alonzo, Sheil, and Wade. And so we played around with all versions of that. And but that's kind of what everyone else does. And so plus, like, there was no good but there was no good combination. Uh, but <laughs> I was all, thinking in my mind. Yeah, yeah a lot of Bush away. Yeah. yeah. So um, and then we start. We tried with descriptive names like um, forward strategies and stuff like that, and it just nothing was sticking. And so then we thought, okay, we're just going to do something really completely different. And we thought, what are the adjectives that we would use to describe this company that we're making? And the adjectives we picked were uh, Southwestern, smart, creative, and funny. And we played around with those adjectives, and it took us a while, and then we came up with Havelina. That's good. Makes all sense in the world. <laughs> it's awesome. Yes. Other questions that we got from the audience? Don't be shy. Any other questions at all? Carlos. So I think, because uh, I hear you about your why, and I think that's, I try to drive myself to this idea about why I care to do what I do. What have you noticed is the evolution of the why? Because I think the why that I had mm. four years ago has completely changed to the why that I have now. And how do you think a brand or a company manages that transition? Yeah, that's a great question. So a question about how do you, as your why evolves and changes a person or organization, how do you deal with that? And our, Havelina's why has completely evolved. And so I think that it's a case of being really reflective and honest about that internally, about that change and having um, really a lot of conversations about what is our why and then how do we communicate that over time? Uh, how do we, um, what are the words we use to encapsulate that? And then you have to think strategically about how do we roll out this change. So Havelina this year became a change engineering company. I would not have used that description probably three months ago. It's something we worked on for a really long time. And so now we've had very, and in fact, you are some of the first to hear that description and we'll be rolling out that as we um, continue over the next few months. And so we've really carefully thought about What's the best way to introduce this concept? How do we talk about this? And so I think it, it's it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. You just have to explain it to your audience so they can go on the journey with you. Awesome. Oh. So, uh, so you have a process that you have to pay for to recognize it, you have to grow. You have to delegate that task to somebody. Do you have any thoughts or experience with over-delegating to people or how you identify that and how you stay close to the ground level and not become detached? 
Yes, I do. I think I've made this mistake myself. So my version of delegating is say, here, do this, and it doesn't work very well. Uh, so I had to learn the hard way how to delegate. So I think it's a case of recognizing that good delegation actually in the short term takes more time than doing it yourself. Mm. However, the reason you delegate is because in the long term it saves a lot of time. So at first, it's a case of sitting with somebody and explaining really clearly what you want them to do and what success looks like, and then actually setting up time in between when you assign it and when the deadline is to sit with them. And then something, a tip that I picked up from somewhere which I really liked was um, if you're delegating something, have the person show you a portion of the work before they do it completely. And so oftentimes now what I've started to do is say, um, you know, Rather than, so I think what a lot of people do is they send me an outline, send me an outline of what you're going to do and that can be good, but what I have started to find very effective is say send me the, the first page or the first paragraph because then you can get a sense of the direction and, and you can tell sort of if they're going wrong. And then once you, it's like getting on an 11 hour flight, you just have to commit that you know you're going to be on this plane for 11 hours. It's the same thing with delegating, you just have to commit that you know that this is going to be more time consuming at the beginning, but it's going to get you to where you're going and it's totally worth it. So, Catherine, one of the questions that I have personally is, uh, we're on the audience right now. So oh, but, but are you guys good? Uh, any more? Any more? Uh, oh, go actually, no, Carlos. No. Yeah. Go, Carlos. <laughs> so, what is the difference between the internal why and just mean the internal motivations of the CEO, my company founder. Yeah. Maybe have them want to be and logistical, whatever the hell you mean. One, two, to the why, why I'm trying to serve my clients okay. as it relates to the impact that I'm trying to have to the community. So how do you find where are you trying to drive your clients mm. that balance between self ambition serving clients and Right, yeah. I think, it's um, a good question. So an, another thing that can be a challenge too is, and this is something I've struggled with a lot, is the difference between my why and Havelina's why. Because Havelina is not me. Um, I lead it, but it's not me. And so that's been tricky to sort of figure out. So when there are these conflicting, competing whys, I think that what can re really, really is worth it is to keep digging and take the time to keep doing the self-reflection until you found something that you think is really an authentic, authentic reflection of what's true. Because sometimes what happens is you go digging for a really great sounding why. Like I am driven to save the world because I witnessed this thing as a child and I am a hero. And you sort of go looking for this why that like sounds really great but it 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 finds it you find it difficult to communicate it because it's not actually a reflection of the truth and so then you know wanting to wanting to make money or wanting to be successful wanting to build an empire whatever it might be there's nothing wrong with that if that's that's your why then um then stick with that but what i would say is take it a level deeper because when you're talking about, you know, I want to make a certain amount of money or I want to have a certain number of employees or I want to have a certain number of locations of my business, those are outcomes, actually. There is something deeper than that. And so I would say until you 
I, I personally think that most people's or most organizations' why is something that's slightly uncomfortable or difficult to talk about. And so until you get to that level that's like, oh, but I don't know if I want to talk about that publicly, just keep going, just keep asking, but, and why is that? So if you want to, if you want to um, make money, why? Where did that drive to make money come from? If you want to build a team of people, why? Where did that come from? And just keep asking, why, 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 why? And it's a process. It's not one conversation with yourself. You have to keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. So your agency is able to do that for you? Mm-hmm. Yes, that is something we do for our clients. And and I, I many of our clients, I sit across the table and I say, and why do you do what you do? And they'll give me an answer. And I'll say, and why is that important? And they'll give me an answer. And where did the motivation to do that come from? And they want to punch me in the face. <laughs> but I know, and they know when they found it. So you just have to keep digging. <clears throat> Nice. Any other questions? So, Catherine, I know um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is like, give us a little bit of, quickly about the unique challenges of being a female CEO. Like, you run this space, you have a company. What does that look like, and why do you feel like it's a unique position to be in? Yeah, it's there's definitely different challenges to it, and I have you know I have a lot of privilege. I have to say that upfront. You know, I'm white. It's very different for a white leader versus a leader of color. Um, I'm. I have this accent that people tell me makes me sound smart. I think that that is actually a real tangible thing. <laughs> That's, <awesome. laughs> That's uh, from Missouri, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, from Jersey. Um, and so, like, I definitely have, like, a lot of privilege, and I recognize that. I think that one of the things that's difficult about – so my, my, the, my co-founders, Bill and David, are men, and they're older than me. And so when we started – we would be in situations with clients where the the client would just assume really that I was in some way subordinate or deferential to Bill and David. And so when we got to the point of negotiating contracts or um, deciding who how a contract was going to be laid out, which is stuff that I've always done from the very beginning of the business, I've always done the business side of things, they would automatically talk to Bill and David or turn to Bill and David. I had one scenario with a client where I was talking to the point of contact for the client who was a woman about my age and I was talking to her about an outstanding invoice and she said, you know, let me talk to your business partner because we both know that's really who I need to talk to. And it it, it, it blindsided me. I didn't know it was coming and oftentimes when I'm in those situations, I say nothing in a moment. So I was like, okay. <laughs> Even though I then had to email her later and say, that's really deep and so it's those sort of assumptions and it's so ingrained that we don't even really realize that we are doing it Um, and so it's those little things and then it's also too sort of you get in your own head Um, and so I think the other side of it is not letting that happen and just kind of walking a walk and owning it even if you don't really feel like it all the time and because if you don't believe it's true, if you don't believe you, that you're the one with the authority and you're the leader, no one else is gonna follow. It's gonna follow. So it's a case of embodying it yourself first. Thank you. That's awesome. Thank you. Well, I don't know that people know, but every week we receive letters from little kids all over the world with questions, and this is the first time that uh, that we're gonna pull out the mailbag. I to be clear, I have no idea what's in there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really scared about this. Well, this one says it's to Centauri from Little Wendy in Chandler, Arizona. Great. Shall I, 
it really, it really does say that. Oh, it should be good. It's like a top of the rope. That's okay. It says, hi, Centauri. Love the show. Please ask Catherine this question for me. P.S. I think you're way funnier than George. That's true. Uh, Catherine, uh, as our national politics continue to become more divisive, how can I be locally, how can I locally get involved and make a difference? That's a great question from... Wendy. Wendy. Little Wendy. Little Wendy. Wendy From Chandler. Chandler. Bless her heart. Great question. Very mature (laughs) question. And very mature handwriting. Um, So, uh, how to get involved locally. All right. So, the the best place to start is to volunteer with your local party. um, For, yeah. I mean, really, I think if you want to get involved politically, that's the best thing to do is to go to your, either your um, city. Some cities have... uh, Democratic and Republican organized parties, um, your county or your legislative district, and to get involved there. And if you get involved in the local level, you will know what's going on. And if you get involved, that is where the um, the most impactful change happens because the people that run for local office are the people that are one day going to be running for president. Not all of them, but well, I guess. Somebody. Uh, yeah, this is the first time we've ever had a president who didn't run for something else and win something else first uh so hopefully that won't continue to happen but um, <laughs> but uh that is the best place to get involved wendy that's awesome Th- thank you little wendy from chandler for your question <laughs> appreciate you being so proactive awesome well as, as our time is time is drawing to a close what else would you like to share get off your chest me yeah um so i think that the one thing that hasn't come up is um, the idea of how we can all be agents of change. So I think that a the, the old way of thinking is that there was this line between business and advocacy or making a difference. When I got out of college, I was told you can make money or you can make a difference. And I don't think that that is a true dichotomy. I think you can do both. And I think, in fact, that when people who make money also choose to make a difference while they're doing it, is when the world will truly change. And so ultimately what we as a company are trying to do is we are trying to make change, but actually what we're trying to do is make tons of change engineers on the organizational level, on the individual level, so that as many people as possible have the tools to go out in the world and make a difference. And to really sort of embrace change as a positive thing rather than something that I think a lot of us are taught to fear um, but really see it not as something that we must choose to do, but something that we must do. Wonderful. Well, that's awesome. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, give us a share on social media, and as always, keep questioning because the struggle is real. Can we give Catherine a round of applause? Give her a round. Good job. Great. 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 Thank you guys so much. It's all good. It's all good. Thank you so much for hosting this incredible event. Oh, yeah. it's absolutely awesome. Right. Oh, thank you. And for letting us join. Please feel free to join in the snaps of it. And so we'll get to know each other, talk about how the tea that you want to make in the world, and change business plans, and make that connection. Thank you all. That's perfect. That's good. Is this still recording? I don't know. It is actually. Yeah.